Good morning. Today we're going to be in Micah 5, and we're starting a new short Advent series uh, where we're going to be focused on some prophetic texts. These are all prophetic texts that Matthew quotes within the birth narrative or around the birth narrative of Jesus. So today we're going to be looking at, at Micah chapter 5. Next week we'll be looking at Hosea 11. And then the week after that we'll be looking at Jeremiah 31. So as we're thinking about the, the coming of our Lord, these are texts that foreshadow it. And these are texts that Matthew brings into the scene. Maybe you'll remember a few weeks ago, so as we're looking at the prophets this week and the next couple of weeks, maybe you'll remember a few weeks ago when we were in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, when Peter said this about that inheritance, that imperishable, undefiled inheritance that is kept by God in heaven for us, and this salvation that has been revealed and will be revealed more fully. He said this at the end of, or near the end of that section, he said, concerning this salvation, The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look." We're going to be looking at at some of those prophetic texts where those prophets are are, are prophesying those things that concern us. And today, as I said, we're going to be looking at Micah chapter 5. But before we jump into Micah, if you've ever heard me preach before, you'll know that I always give these kind of introductions to the text that we're having. So before we jump into Micah, I want to to survey very briefly the, the message of the prophets, which I did a couple of times ago when I preached very briefly. And then I want to look at Micah and the context in which he's talking. So the first one is, is prophecy. So as we're about to begin this sermon series, this short sermon series on these prophets, understand what the prophets are doing. So we're looking at some messianic texts, but the majority of the prophets aren't actually talking about the coming Messiah in its immediate within those immediate oracles. What they're doing is they're talking to Israel and to Judah, three main ideas. They're trying to tell the people of Israel in their, in their context that they've broken their covenant relationship with God that they had. This covenant relationship was founded at Sinai, right? Moses was, was, was there mediating the covenant with them, and they've broken it. And what they need to do, the prophets are going to tell the people, they need to repent. They need to, they need to come back to God. And then there's a second part. If they don't repent and come back to God, be faithful to their covenant relationship, then there's going to be judgment. And that judgment that's going to come is going to be exile. And we actually see historically those exiles happen with Assyria and Babylon. And both of those are part of the context of the passage in Micah 5 today. But then there's a third thing that the prophets will talk about. So they'll say, even though you've broken the covenant, even though you haven't repented, even though you're about to go into exile and judgment, God is going to give you a hope beyond this judgment. And it's that, those hope passages where we see these these messianic promises, these promises that God will will give the people a new heart and he will give the people a new king. He will bring a new David that is going to come. And that's what Micah 5 is. is It's one of these salvation passages. Micah himself was a prophet who prophesied in the 8th century BC. That's the 700s. That's when most of his prophetic ministry took place. He prophesied during the reigns of Jotham, 
Ahaz, and Hezekiah. If you want to read about those, go to 2 Kings 15 through 20. You can read about each of those kings and their reigns. I'll just give you a super quick recap. Jotham was what I would call kind of a so-so king. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He worshiped God. He loved him like Uzziah, his father, had done. But, right, you'll have that statement. Like, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but he didn't actually require that necessarily of all the people. He allowed the high places to flourish, and the people were still sacrificing on them. Ahaz, the next king, during, which my, during whose time period Micah is also prophesying, is one of the worst kings in all of Israel or Judah's history. He was genuinely terrible. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, which means he was an idolater. He put a foreign altar in the temple. So imagine, right, like bringing a foreign God's altar and placing it in the temple. He removed items from the temple and even sacrificed his own children. He was not a good king. Then Hezekiah, his son, was one of the best kings in all of Judah or Israel's history. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He, he wasn't perfect, just like none of the kings were, but he was a good king for the most part. So that's the historical context. And Micah is from Morasheth, which is in Judah, but he's preaching both to the northern kingdom of Israel until they go into exile in 722 B.C., And he's also prophesying to the southern kingdom of Judah. Because right after, so to go back in time in history just a little bit, right after Saul ruled and David ruled and Solomon ruled, right after Solomon ruled, the kingdom is split into two different kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. That happens right around the year 930 BC. And from 930 BC for about another 200 years until 722 BC, those two kingdoms are often enemies with one another. There's, there's antagonism between them. And in 722 BC, Assyria comes and wipes out the northern kingdom of Israel. And so Micah is prophesying at that time when Assyria is the world power, when they are, they're, they're, they're looming on the edges of Judah, they've wiped out or about to, depending on where you're reading of Micah, they've wiped out the, the nation of Israel And Micah is going to prophesy, and his book can be broken up into three main sections, chapters 1 and 2, chapters 3 through 5, and then chapters 6 through 7. Each section begins with a command to hear, where I think that they're drawn back to that command to hear, O Israel, in Deuteronomy 6. They're commanded to hear, and then prophecies are preached over decades that are, that are gathered together within the book in a rhetorical fashion that talk about judgment that's going to come. So chapters one and two is gonna talk about judgment that's going to come. Chapters three through five is gonna talk about judgment to come. Chapters six through seven is gonna talk about judgment to come. And then it's gonna talk about within each of those sections, restoration under the shepherd king that's going to come. And so we find ourselves in that middle section of the book, three through five, and we're at the end of that section. So in Micah 1, Micah calls the heavens and the earth to witness against Judah and Israel. If you know the the Mosaic Covenant, in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and 31, there are these witnesses to God's relationship with his people, his covenant with his people. And he calls them to witness the, the, the vows, the oaths that they've made to one another. 
And when the prophets bring these up, what they're doing is they're saying, Judah, Israel, you've messed up. I'm calling these covenant witnesses to testify against you. And that's how the book of Micah is going to start. And Yahweh himself, the Lord himself, is also a witness against them. He's taking them to court, so to speak. Yahweh is, is, is going to, at the end of Micah 1, come from his temple, and he's going to judge the, the capitals of Judah and Israel, Samaria and Jerusalem. And then in Micah 2, judgment's going to come to the wicked on that great day. You'll see that language a lot within the prophets. It's this day of the Lord that is going to come. And this day of the Lord has two different ideas built into it. It's a day of judgment and gloom and terror for those who do not know the Lord. But it's a day of hope and light and marvelous glory for those who do. But he's going to come and he's going to judge the wicked on that day. But the people, they don't want to hear this message. They don't want a preacher that's actually going to preach to them. Instead, it says that they want a preacher that's going to blow wind and tell lies. A preacher who talks about strong drink and says, let's party. Everything's going to be good. It's a, it's a great text to read to a college audience, right? That's the kind of preacher you want, right? It's, it, they, they want a preacher that's just going to, as Paul would tell Timothy, tickle their ears. But God, instead, he's going to bring about this judgment, but he will assemble this remnant and he himself, Yahweh himself, will be their shepherd king, is how chapter 2 ends. Then that next prophetic section in 3 through 5, which is the section that we're in today, hopefully I haven't lost you yet, is that there's going to be judgment on the leaders for devouring the people. Really strong language is used here. They flayed the skin off of his people. They're, they're cutting them up into pieces and putting them in a pot to eat. It's really very graphic, disgusting language. But he's, he's judging all of their leaders for doing this. And then the prophets are preaching peace. I should say the false prophets are preaching peace. And they're leading the people astray. Because they think that everything's going to be fine. That everything's going to be all right. But God says, no, justice has been perverted, so I'm going to bring justice. Judgment has been perverted, so I'm going to judge you. And then in Micah 4, he presents a picture of restoration that will happen, he says, in the latter days on Isaiah, in Micah 4.1. Jerusalem is going to be exalted and restored. The weak, the lame will become strong and kingship will be restored. Judah will go into exile in Babylon but will return. And he uses this imagery of a woman who's in labor to describe their time there. And that's where we're going to pick up with our text in Micah chapter 5 today. So if you turn in your pew Bibles to pages 778 and 779, that's where our text is. And I'm going to start and I'm going to read starting in, in Micah 4.6 and I'm going to go all the way to 5.5a. It's not as long as it seems because it's all poetic verse. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will, make a, I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem, from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. 
And then notice these now passages, in verse, starting in verse 9. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make, you, uh, I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hoofs bronze, and you shall beat, it in, piece, beat in pieces many peoples, and, and shall devote their, their grain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. And then our text today is going to be 5.1, and I'm going to go to 5.5a. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against you. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are by, are too little, uh, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. The big idea of this text is this, and you'll laugh because my big idea sounds like a Puritan book title, but it's that God will strike Judah's king so that a new David, that is Jesus, can rule over his people to usher in his kingdom. This king will return the remnant from exile and be the shepherd of God's people. He himself will be their peace. All of these ideas are, are coming out of this text. Josh needs to teach me how to write smaller, big ideas. Is really the, the moral of, of this sermon. Um, but God's going to strike their leader, right? He's going to strike them through this, this foreign army. And then he's going to give them a new leader. This new leader will return this remnant people from exile and will shepherd them and he will be the source of their security and their peace. It's a beautiful picture of God taking a very bad situation and making it glorious to the glory of his name. So as we go through this text, there are only two, I think, main sections of this text. The first one is in Micah 5, 1 through 2. We get this picture where God is going to provide a new David when their leader is struck and humiliated. So in Micah 5, 1 and 2, God will provide a new David when their leader is struck and humiliated. And this text says this. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against you with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. 
So if you were paying attention when I was reading that larger context of the passage, this is the third now that Micah is giving within that context. He really wants them to pay attention to this. One's found in verse 9, so verses 9 and 10 are read together. One was found in verse 11, so 11 through 13 are read together. And then 5, 1, and 2 is this third now. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. If you're reading a more paraphrased type of translation, you're probably going to lose that. So, uh, but but if, you're, if you've got the Pew Bible open, the ESV kind of retains that now there. That now introduces this distressing situation that's happening. Each of these now sections, as, as one commentator talks about, says that, it's a, that it does three things. It's a description of the approaching disaster that the nation is facing in the near future. So that now introduces that, that, that calamity that's about to come. And then it also, it contains within those now sections, a promise of deliverance by God. But then it also talks about this establishment of some greater kingdom. And in our text, a messianic kingdom, a new, a new David is going to come. In these texts, in, t- in verse 1, Micah sees a siege laid against the people and tells them to muster. Their leader or their judge will be struck on the cheek. I'll talk about who this is historically, possibly, in just a second. But there is hope that another leader is coming who's better. Right? So their leader will be humiliated and struck on the cheek, but another leader is coming. And this ruler is going to come out of Bethlehem. So who else came from Bethlehem from, from their historical context? When they hear the name Bethlehem, when Micah's audience hears it, they think of David, because that's where David was. Bethlehem, the word, means house of bread, and then this, this extra title that's added onto it, Ephrathah, it's found in a couple of other places in Scripture. In Genesis 48, you find it in Ruth 4. This, this additional title is used as well. Scholars debate what it means and its significance. But the meaning of it, like the, the word itself, just means like fruitfulness. So it's, it's, it's an indicator of the fruitfulness of that city. So Bethlehem, Ephrathah, another ruler will come from them. This, this ruler will be a new David because they... When they hear that another ruler is going to come from Bethlehem, what they think of is they think another king is going to come who's going to be a new and better David, right? So this birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem shows that this leader will be a new David. And why David? Because he was Israel's great shepherd king. This idea of being a shepherd and a king are found throughout the Old Testament and throughout, really, the the ancient context that the Old Testament is found in as well. So that's what they expect their king to be, this shepherd ruler over the people. And this, this, this Davidic king is going to come specifically because God chose David to rule over his people and entered into covenant relationship with him. You can find that, that text where he does that in 2 Samuel 7 and in 1 Chronicles 17 where God makes a covenant with David and promises David that his descendants will rule and reign on the throne forever. This new David will be their king. He will be their ruler. And the king has been expected from of old, from ancient days. There has been a long expectation of this king's coming. And all of the prophets are going to talk about this. Micah is one of the earlier writing prophets. So if you look at the biblical books, the other writing prophets who are writing around the same time as Micah 
are prophets like Isaiah, who's his contemporary, Jonah, and Hosea, right? Those are, those are some of his contemporaries. But then some prophets are going to come on later, and they're going to still talk about this expectation of this coming king. So this king who's going to come after their leader, their judge, is humiliated This text, I think, points to a few basic ideas that I want us to reflect on for a moment. One is that God's king rules. This text starts with a picture of despair. The people are told to muster. Siege is laid against them. And their leader is going to fail. He's going to be struck on the cheek. As it's talking about, there are two possible, I think, historical events that that Micah is talking about within that context. The first one is the, the Assyrian invasion by Sennacherib around the time of, of, of Micah, right around 700 BC, 701 BC, uh, where Hezekiah, one of those good kings, is humiliated by Sennacherib. Micah 5, 5 through 6 mentions Assyria. But I think it's probably more likely, I think both of these are in context, but I think that it's also got in mind King Nebuchadnezzar's capture of either Jehoiachin or Zedekiah, probably more likely, about a hundred years after Micah is prophesying, a little bit more than a hundred years after this. So Micah 4.10 said that they would go into exile in Babylon, and 5.4 is part of that, that section. Both of these would have seemed catastrophic to the people of Judah. Their leader is going to be struck when God promised David that he would never lack a descendant on the throne. But instead of this being catastrophic, it actually turns out to be a source of hope within Micah's prophecy. The people aren't going to be ruled over by a disgraced or flawed leader. Remember what the leaders were doing in Micah 3 when I gave that quick recap? How they're devouring and eating their people? Strong language, right? But instead, they're going to have a new David over them, a good leader, a leader concerned with God's judgment and justice and peace. We live in a time when we could very easily despair over leadership at almost every level, right? But this this text isn't about a political system in the Western world. This is about the king that we are supposed to place our trust in that God has chosen and God's king rules. And he is Jesus Christ, the new David, the new and better David. And he was born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, 2,000 years ago to fulfill these words of Micah 5. He rules and reigns perfectly. Read that description of the leaders in Micah 3. None of that has any connection with Christ. He is not like the broken and flawed kings of Judah and Israel's history. He's not like the leadership that we have known. And when this king was struck, when Jesus was struck and humiliated, it was for the salvation of his people. From this text, we also see that God establishes God's kingdom. Note how the king goes out, the text says, for me, right? That first person singular pronoun. What does that mean? It means for God. God is sending him out for for himself. Often, I think that we can despair about the situation of things because we are too focused on building our own kingdoms, 
But note that God's king establishes God's kingdom. Not mine. Not yours. And when we focus so deeply on our kingdom that we've lost sight of God's glorious king who rules his glorious kingdom, we're really no better than Judah or Israel were within their context, are we? That's who Micah is speaking to. And we notice that God establishes his kingdom from a lowly place. You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are just so small. God's kingdom is wonderfully beautiful. It reminds me of Jesus' parable of the mustard seed there. It starts so small, but then grows to be such a great tree. There's such a great kingdom. So God has established his king, and he has established his kingdom. Even when Judah's leader was humiliated, this will happen in the context of that audience. This has happened in our context with the coming of Christ. But he's going to go on, and he's not just going to describe where that king was from, which is what Micah 5 and 2 is about, but he's going to describe what this king is like in Micah 5, 3 through 5a, where he says this. And this, this idea, the idea in this section is going to be, this king will be born to shepherd God's people by returning them from exile and being their peace. So that's, the, that's what 5, 3 through 5a is about. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. That language from chapter 4 is used here. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they, that is his people that he's brought back, shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. That he shall be their peace is part of the next section. But I think it it culminates the ideas of what the shepherd is doing as he's drawing his people back. From context, the king of verse 2 will be born within this time period of affliction, right? Those now sections show that this is a sad, it starts off sadly. But that God will give his people up when this new king is born. He's going to bring them back. Note the continuation of that labor imagery from Micah 4 where it says that they're going to go into Babylon. And this king who is going to be born, he'll return this remnant to the people of Israel. He's going to bring them back. He's going to gather them together. That language from chapter 4 is finding its culmination here. This king will stand and shepherd the people in the strength of the Lord. And because of this king's ruling, God's, because this king rules God's way, the people will dwell securely. This is language that they would have recognized immediately as coming from the Davidic covenant that God made with them. They would have thought 2 Samuel 7 immediately when they hear these words about security and safety. And as they're, as they're looking towards this, they're thinking about their present distress in Assyria with the Assyrians looming around them. And they're also thinking of that coming distress that's already been prophesied about Babylon coming to exile them as well. And as the hearers would have heard Micah, they did not have safety or security. But this would have been their hope for the future. The language of these verses also forms a beautiful picture. In verse 4, it says that while the ruler stands, the people sit or the people dwell. 
So because the ruler is ruling and standing, the people are secure. They're dwelling in safety. Another word for that word dwell is is they're sitting in safety. So he's standing while they're sitting. And the people are able to sit in safety because this king will stand and shepherd them. This king will be great to the ends of the earth, and this king will be their peace. Also language from the Davidic covenant there. So as we look at this passage, it's turned from darkness to light. God is sovereignly in control of their history. Note the language, he shall give them up and tell. God's hand is all over this. A thoroughly biblical worldview knows that everything that, everything that comes proceeds from the hand of God. We may have a tendency to think that God is not there. This is a, this is a time of year that can be particularly lonely. It may feel like God isn't there. Maybe you're going through, as, as Josh just prayed, angst and stress over finances, over relationships, over all of those things that are, that are important, right? And it can make you feel lonely, maybe sickness. But Micah has just prophesied that God's people has hope because God is in control of what is happening. And even though we, we may find ourselves in a situation that we don't understand at this present moment, we can trust that God's good king rules over God's good kingdoms in such a time. The people of Micah's day were anxiously awaiting a king from David's line who would come and shepherd his people in Yahweh's strength, in the Lord's strength. This king's coming is from ancient times. Not only is this speaking of David, but I think it's also speaking of the one who is to come and rescue God's people from exile and bring him back into right relationship with himself. We see this this, this hope of this person, this, this Messiah, who is going to come littered throughout the pages of the Old Testament. God's king, this new David, is Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin to bring his people up from exile, exile from their sins, and into his marvelous kingdom. This idea is talked about also all over Scripture. Read Ephesians 2, right? We were dead in our sins and transgressions, but he made us alive together in Christ. He has rescued and redeemed us. And when talking about the birth of Jesus, Matthew 2 quotes this text that we've just read. And starting in Matthew 2.1, he says this. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jesus, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Because Herod, you know, he hears that there's another king, and he's getting freaked out a little bit. And all of Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and then they quote Micah, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the, the rulers of Judah. From you, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Right, so you get a, a little bit of a truncated, they're, they're, they're paraphrasing it there. God has set his son 
the good shepherd of his people over his kingdom to shepherd his people, to return his people from exile of their sins and to make them dwell securely in his pasture, in his hand. John 10, a text with which Malachi talked about earlier, he, he read part of, also shows that Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the good leader of his people. And what does the good shepherd of his people do? Lays down his life for the sheep. He knows his sheep, and his sheep know him. And when he calls, his sheep listen. And he, and, and he calls his sheep from every nation who will listen to his voice. He came to give his sheep eternal life, and he gives his life so that his sheep can take it up. And, and then he takes it up again so that his sheep can have life. Jesus was not like the humiliated leader of Micah 5.1. Jesus was not like the shepherds of Israel and Judah in Micah 3. Jesus was the good and perfect shepherd. And when Jesus is, is talking in John chapter 10 to the people, it gives a picture of how he was received. But it also gives a picture of how securely his people dwell in his hand, which is what Micah promised And this is what Jesus says in in John 10. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, so they're saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them, the sheep, out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What other king can do this? What other king can offer forgiveness of sins reconciliation with God. What other king reverses the pattern of exile and alienation that had plagued the world and God's people for so long? No one. No other king can do this. No other shepherd can lead his people in this way. And today, in in the 21st century, we stand in a place where this kingdom is real. It is here and it is now, but it's also not yet. We live in the midst of a broken world with broken promises where we probably don't feel like we dwell safely and securely all of the time. We are anxious and we anxiously await God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. So we're not too unlike Micah's audience in that we're waiting for this great shepherd king to bring final and full peace to his people, which if we believe in the name of the Lord, we are. And if you don't, you are those people that, John was, or that, that Jesus was talking to in John 10 where he said, you don't understand or listen because you are not my sheep. Listen to the shepherd's voice. Repent and, and, and go to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. 
But we're not unlike Micah's audience who's looking forward to this final and full peace. We're just awaiting this shepherd's second coming. Micah's audience was looking forward to both the first and second. We look forward to this king's return. And I want to I want to end by thinking about kind of these three things as we're thinking about Jesus's kingdom and who Jesus has called us to be as his sheep who are dwelling securely in his hands. The first one is Jesus's sheep know that he is in control and that he brings peace that surpasses all understanding. Trust and rest in him. I don't know what everyone is going through, but I know that we are all going through things. Things do seem out of control, but God's king brings peace even in the midst of calamity and disaster. He is the one in whom we need to trust. Some of the ways that you can do that are prayer, meditating on God's good word, reading scripture, and just being honest with God. Read Psalm 23 about God being the good shepherd and see the the honesty of the psalm and the laying of, of, of the psalmist's heart bare before God. Lay your heart bare before God and put your trust in him. So not only do God's sheep know that he is in control, but God's sheep also listen to his voice. Notice what Jesus had said there. Do what Christ says. Love God and love your neighbor fiercely. Christ's words, God's words in Scripture are convicting. They make us uncomfortable, right? They should. They're God's words, right? If we are his sheep, we will listen to his voice because we know that he is a good shepherd and a good parent who knows what's best for us. Don't rebel against him. Come back to him. Seek his voice and listen to him because that's what his sheep do. Those who do not listen to his voice are not his sheep. And then third, be ready for this coming of Jesus, our great shepherd king, who will remove all pretenders from their thrones and who will establish finally and fully God's kingdom. So as we look back at what God has done by sending his son to be born in Bethlehem, this prophecy that Micah made, I pray that you would have peace that only he, Jesus, can offer. And I pray that we would faithfully endure while we're awaiting his return. And I want to end with reading a text that we read just a couple of weeks ago at the end of 1 Peter chapter 2, where it talks about who Jesus is as the shepherd of his people. And he says this, 1 Peter 2, 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly all those themes found in Micah. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Listen to his voice. For by his wounds you are healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer 
of your souls. Let's pray.